Welcome to the podcast of Vineyard Church Cardiff. We are a multi-site church longing for God's kingdom to come in order to restore the city and renew the nation of Wales. During the coronavirus outbreak, we are not meeting on a Sunday, but you can stay connected with us on YouTube, Facebook and Instagram. Just search for Vineyard Church Cardiff. Each Sunday, we will be streaming a full-length service and providing resources for the kids. And across the week, we're putting up loads of content. You can find out more on our social media or at cardiffvineyard.org forward slash online church. Here's this week's talk from our senior pastor, James Rankin. I'm back in our series on the book of James today, continuing our series on real faith. Now, what I love about the book of James is it's so practical. It's really down to earth. And the question it asks and answers is, if you really believe the teachings of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ, what will that look like? What kind of life will that create day to day? What does real faith look like? And last week, Paul looked at the subject of wisdom, how to live wisely. And he, and he had three things. The first was if you lack wisdom, you just need to ask God for it. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who loves to give. So that was the first one. The second one was just surround yourself with wise people. We can learn from other people that are further on in the journey than us. So surround yourself, live amongst them, live with them. And then thirdly, it was he looked at the way that we made decisions. And he encouraged us to go back and look at the decisions that we've made in life. What kind of, do we make good decisions? And that's a process of reflection, looking back and going, can I do this better? What would it mean to make really good decisions? And so he encouraged us to do those three things. Now, today I have got the the title, Real Faith Walks in Humility. And we're looking at James 4 verses 1 to 12. And James 4 starts with a question, much like Paul's passage last week had a question that kind of set it up. So this is the same. And it's this question. What causes fights and quarrels among you? It feels a little bit like one of those university essay questions. It reminds me of my degree. In no more than 4,000 words, answer this question. What causes fights and quarrels among you? don't know about how you feel about when you had to write essays. I know some of you are still writing essays, but it just gives me those little palpitations. It's like, oh no. But coming back to this subject of fights and quarrels, I can still remember an incident I had when I was 10 with my best friend. There were three of us and we were playing hide and seek at the bottom of one of my friend's gardens. And it was this huge oak tree. And my best friend, just had an emotional outburst in the middle of this game. He obviously felt something was unfair and unjust and so ended up just running off in having a tantrum and running off. And so me and my other friend were left and we were standing by this tree and we, and we just started talking or moaning about this other person, my, my best friend. And so for five minutes we were just talking about, oh, do you know, it's really annoying, I can't believe he does this. You know, a bit of a character, it wasn't our best moment anyway. We thought my friend had disappeared. He hadn't. He was hiding in the trees and he could hear every word that we'd just spoken. And he comes out of the trees and I can still remember the look in his eyes, that look of betrayal. How could you say those things about me? Just devastated, tears in his eyes. 
and my heart sank. I was like, how am I ever going to recover this situation? What, what have I done? And that's so sorry, said a lot of sorries. But it was a lesson that I learned that day. If I'm not willing to say something to somebody's face, then I shouldn't be saying it behind their back. And yeah, it changed me because I can still remember. It's funny, isn't it, how we have incidents in our life that we look back to and we can remember. And I was completely in the wrong. I'd done everything wrong. Now, in this life, we are all going to have conflicts and arguments and fallings out. It's just part. And the only way to protect against that is to not have any relationships. And some people choose to do that. In fact, they, they have had such a hard time sometimes that they've fallen out with people so badly that they actually just isolate themselves in order to protect their hearts. But if we're gonna be in community with people, if we're gonna do life well, then actually there are going to be moments of disagreement. So last week we looked at two kinds of wisdom and this week I wanna look at two kinds of conflict. Godly conflict and worldly conflict. And James, who has written this book is so perfectly placed to be able to teach us about this because he starts talking from a deep and profound personal experience. Now we have to remember that he's the little brother of Jesus and so he would have seen all of the conflict in Jesus's life. He would have seen the people that opposed him, that came against him, that arrested him, that crucified him and so he saw worldly conflict launched against his big brother and then he would have also seen Jesus respond in this perfect gracious godly truthful way and what James is telling us us is that there are two options when you have a conflict you can handle it in a worldly way or you can handle it in a godly way and so he begins with option number one he starts talk by talking about worldly conflict what causes quarrels and causes fights amongst you? This is his thesis statement. This is his big question. This is his big idea. And the remainder of what he's going to talk about in these next verses, 12 verses, is really just answering this question. And it's a question that many of us are going to ask. Maybe you see a couple and they're fighting and you're just thinking, oh, why are they fighting? What's going on? You see a family that's been ripped apart. What's happened here? You see people that used to be business partners and it's just begun to got, it's got nasty, it's got messy, it's got acrimonious. You see people that have been best friends and suddenly this incident's occurred and they've become enemies and they've not got a good word to say about each other. You might be asking some questions in your own life right now about some relationships that have got, how come I'm arguing so much with my, my spouse or, or my family, my friends, what's going on? We, we all ask this question in very various ways. What, what causes that? What causes this situation? And if you ask one side, they'll say, well, they said this and that. And it's even that tone, isn't it? You said this. I'm aware that I've done that in the past and I do it. And then you ask the other side, no, 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 no. That is not what happened at all. They said this and they did that. And James is saying, do you know what, there's some threads and some themes in conflicts. What's underlying it? What's the root? He says this, your passions are at war within you. That before there's a problem out there, there's a problem in here. You desire 
and you do not have, so you murder, you cover, and you cannot but obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And when he's talking about the world here and worldly conflict, he's talking about the way that Satan likes things to work out. That's all that it means. It means that things are put together, organised, brought together in a way that Satan causes Satan to be glad and causes Jesus to grieve. It's when anything is put together and Satan would say, that's exactly what I wanted. It's causing division, it's causing destruction, distress, angst, emotions, all of these things. And Jesus would be the opposite. And he'd be sitting there being like, this is not the way that I would want it. That's what we're talking about by worldliness. Now, in this passage, the Greek word for want that we see in verse two is the word hedon, from which we get the, the word hedonism. And what it means here is that you please yourself. Worldly passions, you please yourself. You live a, a life of self-pleasing. Your comfort, your convenience, your control are just more important than anybody else's. Your needs are more important than the people around you. And that's all it takes. And James is saying in this moment, he's like, you've got to look at your own heart. Start there with any conflict. Look to your own heart. Check your motives. And then he shows us throughout the rest of the passage, well, what does it look like to let God in? In verse three, he says, you do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. James is, is saying that there's a way of praying that is not in line with what the Lord would want because ultimately it's so self-focused. Now, what I'm not saying is it's not wrong to ask. Do you know what I mean? To ask for things from God, you know that God would provide various things. But if we're not careful, we can spend all of it on our own passions, all of it on our own wants and needs. And what God is saying is the way to pray is God that I know that you're enough for me. God that you fulfill me. Because the danger is sometimes when people are praying, they're asking for things of the world to fulfill them in a way that only God can. This will give me what I need. It's like, no, 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 no. That is not going to give you what you need. You ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. It's all about you. And then... The next section or what it says next can seem really shocking. I don't know about you, but some of the language of James, I find it's like, whoa, quite confronting. And he says, you adulterous people. It's like not the kind of language that we use nowadays. But the Bible gives us throughout the Bible. There are lots of um, metaphors and pictures for our relationship with God. And every one of them tells us something different about our relationship that the other metaphors don't. So we have the, the metaphor of God being our king and this concept of the kingdom where God sits on as, as the king of the kingdom, where what he does, where he rules and reigns is where the kingdom of God comes and that we're part of his kingdom. But he is on the throne elsewhere in the scriptures. It talks about um, God being the shepherd and us being the sheep. Now, the metaphor that's used here, the one that's right in front of us, relates to God as the husband of his people and us, his people, as being his wife. So we see this run throughout the scriptures. We see this in Isaiah 54 verse 5. We see this in Jeremiah 
2 verses 1 to 3, more specifically the whole of chapter 16 of Ezekiel, you see this metaphor. But in the book of Hosea, we've got a whole book that talks about this. Hosea marries a woman who he dearly, dearly loves called Goma. And, and he loves her so much, but Goma doesn't love him. She's utterly unfaithful to him. She continually goes off. She's sexually unfaithful with other men. And God comes to Hosea, and this is the basic point of the book, and he says, Hosea, now you know what my life is like because I love a woman, I love a people who don't love me back. And God is saying, Hosea, now you know, have you ever loved somebody and they didn't love you back? Well, James is saying, well, if you understand this picture, this metaphor of intimacy between God and his people, and God and us, then you can see why he's asking for faithfulness and devotion. He's not just saying in this moment, be good, be nice, be moral. He's saying, remember who you are. Think about it until it melts your heart, until it melts you into something else. The passage goes on, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he's caused to dwell in us? God yearns jealousy, jealously. And, you know, so again, this is sometimes a, a concept that we struggle to get our heads round. But it's also absolutely beautiful that God feels so strongly about us that he loves us so much, that he desires our affection and our devotion in exactly the, the same way that you would in a covenant relationship with a spouse, is that you would want that. And instead of coming to God saying, in you, I'm satisfied, instead the danger is that we come to God and saying, do you know what, you're not enough. I need these other things to fulfil me. The danger can be that we're so in love with the world that we don't look for fulfilment in him. And scripture gives us this really stark image of being able to choose. And he's saying, you know, you need to choose. You cannot love both the world and the ways of the world and the things of the world and love God. You cannot be married to both of these things. You know, there is a, if you want to be in union with God, then you cannot love the ways of the world. It says this in 1 John 2 verse 15, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in them. In the message, coming back to the, this passage in James, is, is really profound the way it puts it. It says, you know, you're cheating on God. If all you want is your own way, flirting with the world every chance you get, you end up enemies of God in his way. And do you suppose that God doesn't care? The proverb has it that he's a fiercely jealous lover and what he gives in love is far better than anything else that you'll find. God is calling for our faithfulness. He's calling for our devotion. He's calling for our affection. He's saying, you, you will find it in me. Don't look to these other things to satisfy. They will not satisfy. And I love this little verse, what it says in, in verse six. It's so small, but it says, but he gives us more grace. Thank the Lord that he keeps giving us more grace. He pursues us. He's patient with us. He's jealous for us because he cares about us and he wants to protect our relationship with him. And he gives us more grace. And when we mess up and when we walk away and when we get it wrong, and when we put other things first and we get angry and disappointed, he gives us more grace. There is always more grace. 
So I believe that this, these two strands being interwoven in this passage, the attitude with which we are to handle conflict and the way that we're to relate to God. And in verse six, these two things begin to come together. They begin to dovetail. God opposes the proud, but shows favour to the humble. And what he's saying in this moment is the key to this is humility. Micah 6, 8 that I spoke on, um, that I mentioned when I talked about compassion a few few weeks ago. Act justly, act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. Real faith, walk in humility. That's the title that I have today because humility is a key virtue and posture for the Christian life. But how do we humble ourselves? How do we live in humility? Because what you and I today think of sometimes when we think about the word humility is not what the Bible calls humility. And therefore, it's really, really important that I just spend a moment talking about biblical humility. Because sometimes when we think about a humble person, when I said, oh, that person's really humble. You might think of somebody who's really shy, who struggles to assert themselves. That's kind of a bit, oh, you know, don't hurt me. Don't get that. That is not what we're talking about by biblical humility. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. What's the very next thing? Resist the devil. And here's what the Bible means by humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Oh, I'm nothing. I'm rubbish. Don't think of me. It's thinking of yourself less. It's looking at yourself less. There's a brilliant book that Tim Keller's written called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. It's not being focused on yourself because inside you're confident of your own worth and that God is taking care of the circumstances of your life, that God is in charge. We don't need to worry about it. Humility is not a lack of confidence. So important to understand. So what is cowardice? Well, cowardice is looking at yourself and thinking about yourself. What is courage? It's forgetting about yourself. So when we see acts of courage, when we see something amazing, for instance, there's there's a fire and there's somebody trapped in the fire and somebody ends up going into that fire to rescue themselves. What's going on in that moment? They're not thinking about themselves. They're thinking about the other person. They're being other centered, other person centered. They put their own life aside because it's like, I've got to save this person. That's what courage looks like. It's it, to stand on behalf of somebody who can't fight for themselves. Cowardice, on the other hand, is it's all about me. It's what I want. It's not even looking, not caring, saying, I don't care. God is taking care of this. You're courageous. Why is a humble person able to forgive and be gracious when somebody attacks them? Because I know who I am. I know God's value of me and I know my worth. Humility, kindness, graciousness, forgiveness and courage are a lack of focusing on ourself. Because on the inside, you know, you've, you've settled that with the Lord. I know who I am. I've sorted that identity piece. It's not a lack of confidence. In fact, it's utterly the opposite. It's an incredible confidence in God, who God says I am. Now, a proud person who doesn't have that inner confidence is always feeling snubbed. They're always feeling offended. I'm not getting my rights. They're always feeling, what's going to happen to me now? That's pride. And that's the reason why proud people are not courageous. That's the reason why proud people are not forgiving. It's why proud people are often having meltdowns over how people are treating them, feeling wronged. 
humble people on the other side. They are kind, they are patient, they only confront when they have to, and when they do that, they do it well. Not filled with self-pity. Are you, are you starting to figure out how powerful this word humble is, this, this picture of humility? It's to have this incredible confidence inside of you of your worth to God and that God is taking care of your circumstances, that God is going to fight your battles, that God is on your side. Verse seven, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now the devil loves conflict. He loves to stir up division and conflict is so, so often a spiritual issue. It's a spiritual dynamic that's going on. And the way that we deal with conflict is determined by the degree that we learn to live in godly humility. Let's look at Jesus for a moment. It's always good to look at Jesus, isn't it? But his life was filled with conflict. When we read the, the Gospels and we look at the life of Jesus, it's like, oh my goodness, you had so many conflict situations. And what I love about Jesus is just that wisdom. People come to him and they put him in this impossible situation. They're always trying to trick him and they ask him this question. And Jesus turns around and he's like, huh, well, I'll tell you what, you answer this question first and then I'll answer your question. This wisdom... Some of Jesus's conflict was private, public, one person with a mob, with the Pharisees. How did Jesus have godly conflict? How did he do it? He never had worldly conflict. He had conflict, but he never did it in a worldly way. He did it by the power of the Holy Spirit. He lived by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what this means is that when our passions are kind of inflamed in that moment when it all comes, it's like, wow. We're emotional, whatever the case may be, we need to remember that the Holy Spirit is in us and we have to invite in the Holy Spirit to govern our emotions and to govern our reactions. So often we just need to pause. When the thing that we wanna do is lash out, react, tell somebody that it's not all right, we just pause and we invite in the Holy Spirit. It's like, God, what do you wanna do in this moment? Worldly conflict is rooted in pride. Godly conflict is rooted in godly humility. Pride says these four things. Pride says, I am more important, I am better, I am right, and I will win. Can you see those four things? I am more important, I am better, I am right, and I will win. Can you see how incredibly destructive that is? When you go in with that attitude, can you see why that leads to division? Can you see why the devil wins in that moment? What's the opposite of that? Verse eight, come 